You're listening to the Last Dance podcast with me, Elijah. Over this series, we're talking to DJs, promoters, journalists, and the club owner about the current state of Clubland. We're investigating Clubland's past, present, and future, and discuss how we can take things forward. In this episode, I spoke to Bill Brewster, journalist, DJ, and author of books such as Last Night I DJ Saved My Life, and we talked about the birth of Clubland as we know it today, the challenges Clublanders have to tackle over the years, and why Acid House is responsible for alcohol pops. Just to start off, would you be able to kind of give your version of club history, where it started and kind of where we're at today in 2018? Well, modern club culture started in New York in the late 60s, really. I mean, uh, first proper DJ that we'd recognise in a modern context was probably Francis Grasso, who started playing around 1968. Uh, he was the first DJ to kind of mix records and present DJing as a performance that was about his taste in music rather than uh, rather than being a musical waiter. Prior to Francis Grasso, DJs had basically played requests for people and that's how DJs work. They'd basically uh, be playing whatever people wanted to hear. Um, a bit like a mobile DJ now. Uh, Francis Grasso was the first person to impose his taste on a dance floor. And I think that's why he's the most important DJ in, in a modern context. And then how did it develop for other people kind of building their names? Well, from, from there, I mean, the, f- the first kind of proper nightclub that we'd recognise now is The Loft, which again started in New York in around 69. Um, that was started by a guy called France, uh, by David Mancuso, who opened up his own living space uh, on Broadway in Manhattan. And through what we what used to be known as rent parties, uh, there was a kind of weird sub clause in New York where you could uh, help pay your rent by by having these rent parties. And he used to do that. So every Saturday. Um, I think he, when he first started, he did them periodically, but then they started to happen every Saturday. So every, every Saturday he would charge a, a minimal amount on the on the door. I think it was about two dollars. And you got a coat check for that. You got free food and drink and dancing. Uh, there was no alcohol served. Um, the food was all kind of homemade. But I suppose the important thing about him was a his musical taste and be the lighting and the sound system set up, which was what we'd see now as looking like a modern discotheque. He was really into, he was an audiophile, really into sound. And uh, he wanted to kind of bring that audiophile aesthetic to a kind of nightclub environment. Um, So he developed it along with a guy called Alex Rosner. Alex Rosner was a, Originally an engineer, but he became a sound engineer by default. And uh, Alex Rosner was on Schindler's List. He was a child that escaped Nazi Germany because he'd been on Schindler's List and then grew up in New York and was also an audiophile enthusiast. 
So he helped develop the sound system at the loft alongside David Mancuso. And Mancu what Mancuso did inspired so many people that other clubs started to spring up in New York, like, like the Gallery 12 West. Uh, I mean, there were lo loads and loads of clubs. So he started in about 69. By 71, 72, there were, there were lots of clubs springing up. And by about 74, 75, there were probably 200 in New York. So that was kind of the start of modern clubbing. It all happened really uh, around the time that disco was happening, and all of the all of the kind of innovations that happened in club uh, technology and club development all happened because of disco. So the the invention of the twelve inch single, the concept of a remix, the the idea of a DJ going into the studio and and making records and remixing records, uh, mixing. Um, lighting, sound, all of this stuff happened during the, the disco period. House happened because of disco. Um, Hip-hop happened because of disco. All of these other things happened because of disco. So without disco, we wouldn't have any of the things that we have now. And what were the kind of restrictions at that time for making those things happen? You're talking about, you know, parties and selling alcohol or not selling alcohol and food, like even just gathering an amount of people how did they kind of get around that? Uh, well, there weren't, I mean, New York in that period, there weren't really many restrictions at all. It was a pretty wild, free time. I mean, you know, all of the restrictions that happened in New York happened when uh, Giuliani got into power in the 1990s. What was the kind of parallel happening in the 80s in the UK? That Was it mirroring that or was it something completely different? It developed in a different way in the UK. For example, there was a, there was a big, change in the industry in America when disco crashed in the late 70s but we never really had that in the UK we had uh, the kind of rise of what everybody called the jazz funk scene but I mean the jazz funk scene included a lot of disco records a lot of boogie records um, and actually at the time when it was kind of crashing in the states it was bigger than ever in the UK it was when all the big kind of weekenders were starting and so so dance music was big, but it was different because uh, the drugs of choice were different. Uh, in New York, it was more psychedelic. People were taking acid and um, prescription drugs like quaaludes. Um, it, it, it was a kind of more druggy scene, I suppose, whereas in Britain, uh, the dance scene was really fueled by, by alcohol more than anything, maybe a little bit of spliff in the 80s and stuff like that. But essentially, it was really a kind of, it was about beer more than anything. Um, so it, the direction and the sound of the music was different because of that. Um, I would say the music was less psychedelic. There were certainly a lot of records that were played both in New York and, and in the UK. And, and the kind of jazzy side of things was definitely bigger in the UK than it was in, in New York. Um, but there was a big club scene. But the thing is, in Britain, people weren't really mixing in the same way that they were in in the States. And there were still a lot of people talking on the mic. Uh, Northern Soul, they still talk on the mic. It's really profoundly weird. Uh, the, the, I'd say that the template for a lot of DJs uh, in Northern Soul was more to do with kind of Northern working class um, working men's clubs than... than some you know than the paradise garage and really it was only when a house came in in the late 80s that that britain stopped talking on the mic 
Um, I mean, there were people mixing before then, people like Greg Wilson and, and you know, several others as well, important people like Froggy. Um, but I would say the, the quantum leap was Acid House in 1988. That's when it changed. Which is why a lot of people mistakenly talk about Acid House as being the beginning of dance culture in the UK. And it obviously isn't true. There was a really vibrant dance culture in the UK, but it was just very different to, to America. So talking about Acid House, like what, were the, what was the kind of impact on the UK, the scene, the music, the people? What was the kind of stark difference that, that brought compared to the music before? It was huge. It was... It, it was massive. Um, musically, it, it was different. Um, I think one of the things that House did was it broke down, firstly, socially, it broke down a lot of barriers um, between classes, between races, between sexes, uh, between sexuality. It just was a, a really big sea change in the way that we interacted with, with each other as young people. I think that was the first big change. The second was the music itself was um, sort of like a black punk rock, really. And, and often a lot of the records coming from Chicago were, were really basic uh, in a way that I think inspired kids in Britain to think, actually, I could... I could make one of these records. Uh, and I think what House did for the UK was it was it transformed us from being consumers to producers as well. That was an important change. So lots of people suddenly thought, I can make this, and found that they could make it, and they could make it as well as an American. Uh, so suddenly you had a, a generation of white and black kids in the UK making music that previously only really African-Americans had been making uh, to any degree of competence. Now, that was a big change as well. The other thing it, it did was it, it provided a, a lot of opportunities for working class kids that, that previously, you know, the UK was a very close society in terms of what working class kids could do creatively. And, and I think it broke down those barriers a lot. So suddenly, you know, you could become a DJ a record promoter, you could become, you could start a label, you could become a graphic designer. All of these things suddenly opened up and there's loads of things that kids now can do that were not available to working class kids in the 1980s or not very easily. It broke down, smashed out loads of barriers that have subsequently not been re-erected. So I think it had a massive it caused a massive sea change in British society, not just musically, but the society itself. And like society's kind of wider reaction to that um, in terms of the law, how did it react to all these kids suddenly deciding to become creatives and not, you know, minors or uh, mechanics? I mean, initially the, the law didn't react to Acid House talk because it didn't really know what was going on. It, it, I think it took them probably until about, so about 89, 1990, to really cotton on to what was going on. And suddenly they realised that there were hundreds of thousands of saucer eye teenagers dancing to strange music every Saturday and Friday. Uh, and, then, and then they started trying to clamp down on it. And when the police activity at Castle Morton in 1992 happened, that was kind of the apex of what had been going on. And then... 
the criminal justice bill, which I think was introduced in 1994, was a direct response to Acid House and what Acid House had done. Uh, the other way that the authorities tried to respond to what was going on were the breweries that had been completely caught out by the fact that all of these kids now suddenly didn't want to drink alcohol. They just wanted to do pills and drink water and Lucozade. So they started having to introduce new products to try and tempt these kids back into bars. And I think a good example of that is the, the kind of Alco Pops craze that started in the 1990s that were really developed and specifically aimed at kind of ravers, really. Like, you know, Dayglow coloured horrible alcoholic drinks that sort of tasted a bit like Lucozade but had alcohol in them. I think they were definitely aimed at people that, that were going out and going to so At that time when the laws kind of coming down on the music, did that feel like an end? Did that feel like pressure enough for people to want to get out of doing that kind of thing or pushing into other creative ventures and step away from club culture? Did that feel like an attack on what you believed in? Well, it, it, Yeah, I mean, it obviously felt like an attack on... on the dance music scene, but actually all it did in the end was it pushed everyone inside. So it made it really difficult for people to throw outdoor raves. But equally, that meant that, you know, the 100, 200,000 kids that were all dancing in fields prior to that poured into nightclubs. And it, and really, the, the end result of it was the rise of super clubs. So you, you went from all of these kids dancing in orbital raves on, on, you know, around the M25 and in other places as well, out in the countryside in Cornwall and Devon and Wiltshire and all these other remote places, suddenly you had a, a whole raft of super clubs opening or, or developing in cities like um, uh, Leeds and Manchester and Liverpool and uh, Birmingham and, you know, all, all of the major conurbations around the country. So the, when the, the super clubs came around, do you feel like it uh, took away some of the kind of DIY spirit that was happening already? Or do you feel like it encouraged people to, to press on and start new ventures? It was, uh, you know why? It was already, the commercialization of it was happening from a very early point with the parties that Tony Colston Hayter was doing uh, in 1980. I think the, the end of 88 or the beginning of 89 was when he started doing parties. So the commercialization of it started almost as soon as it had started itself. And perhaps 1988 was the most pure year. But then subsequent to that, it, the commercialization started from about 89 onwards with big outdoor raves. And then the opening of the Ministry of Sound in September 1991. Uh, it was in, an inevitable uh, consequence of what was going on. There were just so many people excited by it that it was inevitable that those things would happen. Okay, and with like kind of clubs popping up everywhere around the country and I don't know, like all different music's happening, genres starting to kind of solidify like drum and bass, garage, house music, hip hop, later on grime, dubstep. I don't know, where do you think we're at now in terms of the club culture compared to then? Is it is it something that you recognise you know, in comparison I think to... the thing that's changed it more than anything is probably the internet. Uh, but I suspect that the internet has changed everything, really. So, you know, everything from politics and how people vote for 
you know, different parties is different now. And, you know, uh, and it's the same with dance music. The, the internet has changed a lot of things. I mean, the way you promote an event now is completely different. Um, yeah, I mean, the access to music is completely different. Nowadays, music is absolutely everywhere. When, when I was a kid, you had to go and seek out music. It didn't, it didn't sit on your lap. It wasn't in front of you the whole time. I mean, you walk around um, shops now and there's, and there's music playing everywhere. It, it really wasn't like that. I, I used to, I, I grew up in a little town called Grimsby and, and we didn't have a record store, even though we had a pop, the population of the area is nearly 200,000. We didn't have a record store. So I used to hitchhike to Nottingham, which is 70 miles away to go shopping. Uh, in selector disc so finding music was difficult and now finding music is absolutely bloody everywhere if you've got an internet connection you've probably got spotify you've got youtube you can find pretty you can find the most obscure music in the world on spotify and on youtube not everything is available but an awful lot of it is and that's pretty mind-blowing really so you can learn a lot about music before you've ever left your bedroom do you think that's made um you know club culture and the music played in in spaces better over time like because people are more knowledgeable people are coming into clubs and djs are kind of more clued up like, do you think that's actually had a positive impact? It's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I think it's great that it's democratised music. It's made it available for, for everyone, irrespective of where they live, what age they are. You can, you know, you can learn a lot about music. On the other hand, I think it's it's devalued music in a lot of ways. Uh, that that it, Music's like water now. It doesn't, have, it doesn't really have a value. Um, and I think that, is a bit of a shame. I think it's made people less appreciative of the music that we have and less um, less keen to pay for it. And so it's made it harder for musicians to continue to make music. So it's a double-edged sword. It's, it, there are good things and bad things about it. Looking forward, what do you think club culture is going to look like in 2030? Um, I don't think it's going to look that much different, but I just think the delivery of music will be different. I don't. I, I think the idea of a physical of music being a physical presence will have pretty much disappeared by then. I think that most DJs will be playing playing from the cloud. Uh, you know, the technology is almost there now for you to kind of go to a club and. and Instead of bringing even a USB stick, you'll just you'll just have a um, you'll just have a cloud account, and everything will be streamed direct from your cloud account. It may be that you don't even need a cloud account; that each club has got every song in the world available on their cloud account, and you just access it. So I think how you deliver music will have changed. But I don't think the the idea of getting together collectively and dancing to music that you love, I don't think that will ever change. I think that's something that's innate in us as human beings wanting to get together. You know, shamans were doing something very similar to what we do now 10,000 years ago. Um, and people have been getting off their heads to music for thousands and thousands of years. So, so I don't think much is going to change in 30 years, really, other than the, the technological shifts that might happen. If you want to find out more about Bill Brewster, type DJ History into your browser or find him on Twitter as DJ History. 
This podcast is part of the Last Dance program I'm running as Associate Artistic Director at Lighthouse. Go to lighthouse.org.uk to find out more or find us on social media at Lighthouse Arts. Last Dance is supported and funded through the Arts Council's Changemaker Scheme. The Last Dance podcast was produced by myself, Elijah, Jamila Prouse and the team at Story Things. If you've enjoyed it, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast to subscribe. Subscribe is the worst word in the history of mankind. 